Good morning, good afternoon, good evening, wherever you are in the world. Welcome to another episode of What Next. Today we have a very accomplished individual and also a friend, a gentleman by the name of Mark Atchler, and I met him many years ago, and today he's doing something very differently than when I met him. But today Mark is a venture capitalist investor, a CEO, a serial entrepreneur, and a faculty member at Northwestern University's Kellogg School of Management. He also is the co-author of Exit Right, which basically discusses how companies and startups can best exit. Welcome, Mark. Rashad, thank you. It's so much fun to be here. I'm very excited for this conversation. Well, it's it's absolutely fantastic to have you. And uh, I've also had the opportunity to, you know, learn from you and see you in action over quite some time. So let me begin by asking you to explain what you currently do and how in the world did you get here? (laughs) Well, I I like to say I make entrepreneurs' dreams come true. So uh, I'm an investor. I'm a venture capitalist investing in early stage technology companies. And I do this um, with my venture fund, Math Venture Partners. And sort of the framework that I construct my life is I love joyful innovation. Um, I think innovation is really hard. And if it's not joyful, why should we do it? So I, I, I love, I'm an innovation junkie. I love building communities and um, teaching empathy. And that construct I use by helping entrepreneurs, by investing in them and mentoring and coaching and teaching entrepreneurs and sitting on boards. I do that in my all my teaching, and I do that in, in the nonprofit work I do as well, as well as the book we wrote, which is helping entrepreneurs when it's time to sell their business. You know, it's really important for me to give back, and that's how I do it. Amazing. Well, let me start with. When we first met, you were running a lot of things at Redbox. So can you tell us a little bit about your background, both prior to Redbox and after? Yeah. So you mentioned serial entrepreneur. I started off life, my dad and I uh, started one of the very first computer retail stores in, in the country, in the United States. In 1981, we were Apple and IBM, and we built that up. It was a very successful store. And from there, I moved to Apple, where I was uh, the worldwide introduction manager for the Apple IIc. I was there in the very early days. I have some great Steve Jobs and Waz stories from back in the beginning. Came back to Chicago because my wife's from Chicago, and she said, if you want to stay married to me... I'm going to be in Chicago. I went, okay. So we're coming up on our 40th wedding anniversary. Congratulations. Thank you. So I started um, a series of software companies. My first one was in 1986. We built the second product ever for Windows 1.0. We took in venture capital in the 1987 when there was literally maybe 20 VCs in the country. And we built that up and sold it to Symantec. And then I had a my next company was an educational software company. My company after that was a games company. Uh, you know, I've just had a series of eclectic moves. 
My joke is I think I've had a fun and eclectic career and my wife thinks I can't hold the job. So it, it kind of depends on your point of view and perspective. And that road eventually led to Redbox, where I became head of innovation uh, and also the head of marketing, the interim chief marketing officer for the company, and was there from the early days and helped them grow and scale to the point where at its uh, peak, one third of all U.S. households were renting a movie from us every single month. And so then after I left Redbox, um, my partner, Troy Hennikoff, started saying, whoa, you know, tech is really taking off. We've got to start another venture fund. And he kind of talked me into it. <laughs> and uh, we started Math Venture Partners in 2014. And we've made over 70 investments in lots of different tech companies. And it's just been a really, real joy. And math, in addition to obviously sounding very quantitative, uh, the first and second initials of the two founders, I'm assuming. Yeah, it's Mark Ackler and Troy Hennikoff. You know, it's so funny, names. It's so hard to get a good name. Every name we came up with uh, was already taken, and, or the URL was already taken. Math was available, Math Venture Partners. And we went, huh. Okay, let's go with it. So the Mark Ackler, Troy Hennikoff show. It, it worked. It's a great name. It's a really strong mark. It's very memorable. It's very simple. And our investment thesis is we invest in software companies that uh, the first real institutional round of funding, uh, we're industry agnostic, but we have a really deep, profound core belief that we look for companies who have an unfair advantage in sales and customer acquisition. We think the greatest product in the world without customers is a great product, but it's not a business. And being an entrepreneur, most entrepreneurs, it's so hard to be an entrepreneur and many fail. And our joke is nobody ever went out of business because they had too many customers. So part of what we look for is, is those entrepreneurs who can not only build great products, but also know how to sell them. That makes a lot of sense because a product without a customer doesn't work. And usually when you know how to sell, you also listen to customers so you can help design better products, I'm assuming. Of course. And we can, you know, you and I, we can go down the rabbit hole I'm a big believer in simplicity, in uh, I think many tech products are overbuilt with too many features, and I love elegant, simple solutions. Uh, and so and I'm a big believer in design. And I think that in in my world, which is more on the technology world, design comes second or last. or and I ask entrepreneurs all the time what comes first? does the product or the brand. And most tech entrepreneurs will say, well, the product comes first. And I, you know, I'm always the believer, well, how do you know what to build? How do you know what features to prioritize? How do you know what's really important? You talk about listening to your customers. If you don't understand your brand, if you don't understand what your customers really care about and the language they use, how are you going to sell it to them? Absolutely. Once you build one of these interesting companies, 
one of the end results, obviously, ideally, is some sort of exit. So could you tell us about how one exits right based on your book? (laughs) Well, let's actually start at the beginning before we talk at the exit. When you start a company and you're the sole or you and your co-founders are the sole shareholders, you can do with the company whatever you want. But the minute you take other people's money, you're taking their agenda. And for me as a venture capitalist, my agenda is really simple. I I want to get a return on my investment of X, you know, X type of return over Y time frame. So my time horizon typically is seven to 10 years. If it's a late, I'm an early stage investor. If it's a later stage investor, sometimes it's three to five years uh, for an exit. And so as an, as an entrepreneur, when you take other people's money, the explicit deal that you're making is you're also taking our, our expectations for return and our expectations for the timing of that return. And what many entrepreneurs don't understand is that the decisions they make at the beginning of their journey have an outsized impact at the end of their journey. So when who you give equity to, co-founders that leave, does do those shares vest to employees, to advisors, to the investors? And we've seen, you know, I've sat on dozens of boards over the years, and I've seen incredible investors who've really added a ton of value. And I've seen some pretty bad investors who literally have tanked companies. And so those decisions around equity matter. And here's what happened. I was uh, helping my co-author, his name is Mert Desheri, and Mert uh, was the CEO of a company called SwipeSense, and he was in the middle of a sale to uh, SC Johnson, large consumer products company. And it was a difficult uh, transaction. SC Johnson, they can buy consumer packaged goods, products all day long. They could buy supply chain and warehouses, but they've never really bought a tech company before. And there's some nuance to it. And even though I was not an investor in Mert's company, Mert was a dear friend and I was his sort of go-to coach. Uh, And so when, as the transaction was happening and there were difficult moments and there are difficult moments in every single transaction, big and small. Uh, I was the guy he would call the pressure valve to sort of release the pressure, talk him off the ceiling and, you know, calm him down and, and help focus on what was really important. The transaction got done and we were having breakfast uh, right before COVID shut down. This was in March, beginning of March, 2020. And Mert, is just bitching. <laughs> you know, Mer- Mertz, rah, 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 rah. He's just complaining because it was a really difficult transaction. And I said to Mert, you know, in, in the spirit of giving back, why don't you write this down while it's still fresh and while it's still, still raw for you, write it down so that the next time SC Johnson buys a tech company, you can say, hey, guys, now that we're on the same side, this is what I went through 
here's how we can make it better. Here's how we can make the process better. And out poured 10 pages. And I looked at those 10 pages and, and I realized that there was a book here that most CEOs are on their own. If the, if you, especially first time CEOs who've never gone through a transaction, um, there's very little information out there about how the best practices of selling a company for some good reasons. Uh, one, it's confidential. There's confidentiality agreements and uh, entrepreneurs and companies are bound by those confidentiality agreements. The second is if it was a good outcome, nobody wants to brag or they, or they don't want it out there in, in the public how much money they made. And if it's a bad outcome, sometimes people are embarrassed and they feel shame and they don't want to discuss it and air their dirty laundry. And I realized, once again, in the spirit of giving back, that this was really important information that could help um, a CEO, and not only CEOs, but all the stakeholders around the transaction. So the M&A attorneys, the bankers, the corp dev leaders in the larger corporations, the product managers in the larger corporations, everybody, the executive team of the company, everybody around a transaction needed to understand some of these best practices. So that's what we did. Fantastic. Well, I'm now going to ask you uh, – and you're, you're right. You know, one of the lines I have often used is money never comes unaccompanied. So right. whenever you take money from somebody, it there's something that you have agreed to do or give or right. uh, it never comes unaccompanied, as you mentioned. Um, I'd like now to chat a little bit about four big thoughts that you have. Uh, and uh, I think the first one is that the fundamentals matter. I think about it as back to the future. So I, I think the fundamentals always matter eventually. Uh, and we're going to talk about that. And we're, we're hitting a, a time right now in the markets where we're sw- if the pendulum swings one way, the pendulum is swinging back the other. I'm a big believer in trust. I have an investment thesis on uh, we live in a world – where there's a deficit of trust. And I think trust is more important than ever. And I think those corporations who really truly understand that will outperform over time. I also believe in kindness. And I think kindness is an underappreciated business virtue um, and also a sense of humor. I think a sense of humor matters too. And the last thing I would tell you is I'm a big believer in the power of community. And I think community is the next social. And I think that most marketing departments of larger companies are fighting last year's wars, not this year's or next year's. And I think if you look at it from a resource perspective, most of the resources in marketing departments are actually focused uh, behind us, not in front of us. Those are four very distinct thoughts. And 
all four of them are ones that we normally don't hear from someone who runs money outside of maybe the first one, which is that the fundamentals matter and there are cycles to every market and sooner or later, reality has a habit of breaking in. But your other three points of trust, which uh, you know I truly believe in, and in fact, I often say, you know, trust is the equivalent of speed. Uh, if you trust somebody, you can get things done faster. Yeah. Kindness is highly underrated. And as George Sanders, the author, has said, if nothing else, err in the direction of kindness. And then your concept of community, I'd love to discuss in more detail because that is a little bit also about looking ahead to what next, which is what a lot of this uh, podcast listeners look for. Well, the thing about fundamentals is it's really easy to get swept up in the hype. It's really easy to do that. And it's hard to have the courage of your convictions. When something doesn't feel right or seem right, just because the rest of the world is marching off in a certain tune, if it doesn't feel right, you should trust your instincts. We're seeing right now in the markets, I mean, from the beginning of the year, Dow Jones is down 12%, S&P is down 16%, the NASDAQ is down 30%. We're starting to see layoffs in the tech world. So the great resignation, we, we could talk about that as well. Once again, the power dynamic may start to change as we start to see more layoffs. Um, and, and you had asked the question when we were talking earlier about the holding companies and how does that impact the holding companies and, and large corporations? And I would just say that when markets tighten up, cash tightens up. When cash tightens up, be really careful about debt. Those large companies who are more heavily indebted, your big, you know, your really nice, friendly banker who takes you out for dinner and wines and dines you and takes you to the ball game. When you start violating your covenants, when banks start getting uncomfortable about debt, bad things happen. And so we are just now scratching the surface because there is so much corporate debt out there that, um, we don't really yet understand the true implications when the knock on the door happens from your friendly banker to the knuckle dragger. So uh, I, 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 think there, I think there's a lot to be said for the power of large companies that have cash on the balance sheet, but you just have to watch debt carefully. Yes. As I often have been told, assets go up and down come and go, but debt is forever. Yeah, that is for sure. Yes. You know, when you take a loan, you owe the loan back, regardless of what happens to the asset you decided to purchase or pleasures you decided to purchase. Yep. That's like a grim reality. And obviously, you know, clearly leverage on the way up works great. Leverage on the way down is a tragedy, uh, which I sense you sense will be happening. Um, and in such a world, uh, 
you know, I think the characteristics as we move forward of trust, guidance, and community are critical. Speak a little bit about trust. Well, so the, the way I think about trust, I think of trust as both offense and defense. Like offense, trust creates um, – uh, if a company violates trust, if a large company violates trust with their customers, with their employees, with their uh, channel partners, um, it creates giant holes for their competition to run into. Uh, and defense is if large companies have the trust – it's like a, a, a moat – it's like it's a way to protect and preserve market share and even to gain market share. And so the way I think of operationalizing trust is brands make promises to their users. Trusted brands keep those promises. And doing that creates loyalty and longevity. And so in my mind, a promise could be a value or an experience like Nike, it's inspiration, or Facebook, it's belonging, uh, or New York Times, it's the truth, or Amazon, it's convenience, or Apple, it's quality. Like we can go down the line and pick, you know, the different types of promises that companies make. Um, and then what happens if you break a promise? Keeping and breaking promises are a big deal in what we have seen is uh, companies that start either taking shortcuts or doing things somewhat weird, like a Wells Fargo might have done by opening fake accounts, yeah, uh, or Boeing by shipping software in planes that wasn't ready. Yep, um, it can impact many, many years later. As I remind people, you know. Opening fake accounts has cost uh, Wells Fargo, besides a lot of money, uh, they're now on their fourth or fifth CEO in six years. Oh, yeah. And, and the, the rippling consequences of that, I, I, it's hard to calculate. You know, someone's reputation is built on both their history of what they've done as well as what their intent is and how transparent they're about their intent. And... I often remind people that trust doesn't necessarily only come from hanging around for a long time, but if you are clear about what you're trying to do and how you're trying to do it, there are two benefits you get from that. One is people can question what you're trying to do and maybe get you to improve. And if you share how you're doing it and be transparent about it, they can help you improve True, And I think many of these companies, from Wells Fargo to Meta to Boeing, did not have clear intent or clear transparency and therefore ended up with a trust deficit. Yeah, and, and that trust deficit, you know, it's so hard to win trust, to earn trust. It is nearly impossible to get it back. We now move on from trust to kindness. Now, kindness is the one that obviously knowing you, it's part of you, but it's not usually a word that venture capitalists speak about. You know, please talk to us about how in the world you found kindness. You know, it depends if you look at life through a lens of a zero-sum game where I win, you lose versus 
the value of a relationship over time. So let me bring it into more of a marketing sense. So I ask uh, company CEOs all the time, I say, well, what do you measure? Do you measure transactions? Like, how did we do today? How do we do this month? Or are you measuring the lifetime value of a customer? Because if you're measuring the lifetime value of a customer, then you're willing to invest in that relationship because you know over time that relationship will have increased value. And I have come to really appreciate that life is not a zero-sum game, that relationships matter, that relationships matter over time. And, you know, I'll use it, you bring up venture capital. So I'll use that as an example. I have seen venture capitalists who will use deal docs and terms and squeeze every last penny out of a transaction to the betterment of themselves, to the detriment of their fellow uh, investors or to their, to the common shareholders, to the entrepreneurs. And they were able to maximize the return on one deal. I would never invest with that investor again. Would uh, that entrepreneur ever take money from that investor again? No way. So that investor, while they maximize that one deal, they're not going to get the entrepreneur's next company. People's reputation really matters. And their reputation lasts much longer than any one deal, any one transaction. And so starting with a longer point of view and perspective and understanding that relationships matter over time, then let's, let's start from the basics of just humanity, just being nice to one another, caring about one another. It's the right thing to do, and it's the right thing to do. Like you're going you're gonna to outperform and have better results. I could not agree more with you, Mark. I think there are a couple of things that we both and many of us have sort of seen over the years, uh, or three of them, all of which you mentioned. One is the game is long. Most of us are going to have 30, 40, 50-year careers. So thinking beyond the day, the month, the quarter makes a lot of sense. Number two is to your point, you know, you are really talking about ROK versus just ROI, where the K is kindness, so return on kindness versus return on investment. And that, in addition to reputation, eventually attracts more and more talented people to want to either work with you, right. have you as an investor, have you as a leader, partner, employee. Um, because in effect, to your third point, which is this is not a zero-sum game. You know, the ideal transaction with someone is where both sides believe they got the better deal, right? right? So at the end of it, you basically say, you know what? I did really well. And the other side says, I really did really well. <laughs> well, you know, that goes back to the book, the book uh, that we wrote, Exit Right. We have a, yeah. um, a framework we call FAIR, which is fit, alignment, integration, and rationale. And the rationale is why is one plus one equal 10? Like how does putting these two organizations create increased value? 
And our job is one, to surround ourselves with the best people possible to create in an environment that allows them to achieve their own individual potential and the team's potential and to create, give them the tools and the space to do that. And I think uh, kindness is just such an important piece of that puzzle. I use the example, have you ever been given a presentation and you sat in a conference room and you were giving a presentation and you felt that people were out to get you, that maybe it was a hostile room, that people were looking to pick you apart versus you're sitting in a room and you're giving a presentation and there's just fundamental trust. And you know, people have your back and that when they, they're free and open to give you feedback, not because they're trying to make you look bad or because they're trying to put you down, but in the spirit of collectively making whatever it is you're talking about better. And like, that's, that's what we're looking for. That's what we're trying to achieve. So now we go to your last point. You made two mentions. One is about community. And second, that this may be the new social or the new next thing. Yeah. And then there's a third piece of that too, which is marketing departments are usually staffed and funded and resourced looking backwards, not forwards. So let's, you know, the historic perspective that you live through and know so well, you know, radio and TV was broadcast, right? It was just one message to many. And then we got into the world of one-to-one communication with direct mail and email and phone solicitations. We all hate the spam phone calls. And then social came, right? And social was, you know, Facebook and Instagram and being able to target specific messages to specific people, which is incredibly powerful. And now I think we're at the point of the next evolutionary step in that journey, which is not only being able to communicate to an individual, but have empower that individual to be their own brand ambassador, to not only be an Instagram in, you know, inf- or a TikTok influencer, but to actually get them to start building community on behalf of the brand because they care about the brand and believe in the brand and identify with the brand so much. What could we do when we empower our customers to actually go out there and help proactively build relationships with other people like them? And what, like, what could they do on their own? when we unleash that power. And I'm really fascinated by that and and excited to see what happens. And there's like a little bit of trust, you know, brands, CMOs are are so hyper-focused on controlling the message. And it's a little bit scary to empower outsiders to entrust them with being brand ambassadors, brand messengers. But I, you know, I think we're we're about to hit that next inflection point, which is community. But the other piece of this is it has to be authentic. Trust has to be earned. And if 
part of community is uh, making sure there's this really fine dance that, yes, we can pay our customers to promote for us, for sure. But there has to be an openness and a transparency built into that equation so people know the motivation why somebody's doing this. Yeah, that definitely ties into trust. So would you recommend marketers do significantly, to your point, looking ahead, is in is, is investing, advocating, enabling, uh, and connecting with Absolutely. And, and with tools and technology, with all sorts of creative support. And in going back to my comment about marketing teams, so I was a CMO of a publicly traded company. And I know when I looked at my budget year over year, I know that I was, if I looked at how I was spending my money, both in terms of customer acquisition as well as headcount. And I actually and I looked at how many people were on the web and how many of my employees were on social and how many of my employees like I know that like at Redbox, we hit a, a this goes back to 2011, 2012, we hit that point where more of our customers were on mobile than they were on the web. We hit that that inflection point somewhere around 2011. And, but I looked at my headcount, 90% of my headcount was on the, was supporting the web and only 10% of my headcount was supporting mobile and social. And I looked at how I was, like how I was actually spending money. My money was not being spent where my customers were living. And I find when I talk to CMOs, I find that happening uh, quite a lot. Yeah, because we tend to optimize for the right. past versus anticipating the future. And there clearly are major you know, shifts going on. And you know, combine those with the shifts you know, post-COVID, whether it be new mindsets and expectations of people, uh, the challenges that are, you know, coming from current economic circumstances. I think it's almost anything that was thought about a year ago has to be investigated. Well, I think I agree. And I, I, I would encourage marketers to challenge their assumptions. And, and a great thought exercise is to say, if you blew everything up and you were starting from scratch, you were a startup doing what you do, and you are going to build a marketing department from the ground up, from scratch, today, how would you do that? Like, how would you build your marketing department? Don't look at what you did legacy. Don't look at what what you are today. But if you're going to start from the very beginning and create an all new, brand new marketing department, how would you allocate your scarce resources? And my guess if people are really honest with themselves, it would look pretty different than it currently looks. Yeah, absolutely. You know, I sense as I've often recommended exactly what you've suggested, which is a fresh sheet of paper exercise saying, if you decide that you have everything that you have that you can allocate, 
you know, your brands, your people, your budgets, etc. And you start with a fresh sheet of paper and you only have three rules. Uh, you know, rule number one is whatever you do has to be legal. Yeah. Rule number two is whatever you has to do has to be technologically possible at the current time. And number three is that it has a certain return on the spending, yeah. either in the short or middle term. What would you do? And my sense is anyone who have taken that exercise through has come up with a very different plan than they currently have. Absolutely. And, and I would add one more thing to that, which is time horizon going forward, which yes. is, you know, when I, one of the things I tell CEOs is – it's not enough to have vision. You have to have vision, but you also have to have urgency. And urgency is one of my favorite words. Urgency is what happens if we don't do this? Like, why are we doing this? And why are we doing it now? Because without urgency, you're not going to get action. And, and you're going to have to have realistic and pragmatic uh, expectations that it just takes time. And so you're going to have to give yourself the luxury of enough time to, to shake things up as well. We have had the amazing opportunity of listening to Mark Ackler. And Mark today has reminded us that as we move forward, there are four very important things to keep in mind, regardless of the company, industry, or whatever we are. These are human, but they also work really great with companies. One is, to everything, there is a season and things go up and down, but make sure that you plan for the long run and uh, make sure that you surround yourself with the right people for the long run. Early decisions make a lot of difference later. Second, and very importantly, trust is critical, has always been, continues to grow, extremely important today, uh, where people are less and less trusting, but trust is everything from relationships to trust marks and brands. Err in the direction of kindness, there is a return to kindness. Kindness attracts people, kindness creates an environment that allows people to innovate. And as importantly, Think about the future of where marketing might go, where the future of a lot of things might be, which might be community, where whether it is the community of employees you have, the community of your key customers, your consumers, uh, how can you enable them and empower them to advocate for the brand, but do so in ways that are authentic and totally win-win. Thank you, Mark. Oh, it's an honor. Thank you very much, Rashad. What next? a publicist group podcast produced by Prodigious UK.